This is Ian Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. It isn't just our problem. ED Crowding Part 2. Welcome back. We are excited to dive into Part 2 on ED Crowding. In our last episode, we spoke with Dr. Deb Dierks, Chair of Emergency Medicine at UT Southwestern and President of the SAEM Academy for Academic Chairs in Emergency Medicine. She is a co-author on the commentary called Emergency Department Crowding, a Canary in the Healthcare System. This came out in the New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst on September 28, 2021. And if you're not aware of it from your last shift, as a reminder, (laughs) ED crowding is the need for emergency services exceeding available resources for patient care in the ED, hospital, or both. And I don't know about you, but in RED, it happens all too often. Sarah, I love this quote from the commentary. The commonly accepted framework explaining ED crowding focuses on ED input, throughput, and output inefficiencies. Unfortunately, this framework and its traditionally targeted solutions, however helpful, often fall short as they do not address the primary and root causes of ED crowding. We assert that the largely unrecognized cause of ED crowding and its negative impacts on patients are due to misaligned healthcare economics and financial pressures on hospitals. Yep, I think that sums it up well, and it sets us onto the path of solutions. So without further ado, let's dive back into our interview with Dr. Deb Dierks. Well, Deb, we've talked a lot about ED boarding and crowding as very complex problems that we're all facing. Let's now talk about some of the solutions. Yeah, you know, I I try to always be optimistic. The best solution that I've been able to be a part of is opening a lot more hospital beds. That has been the best solution ever um, because it did work, at least for a while. And then they came and filled it up. There are so many opposing forces on this. We have the patient-centric approach, which is we want them to get great care. We have the health system approaches. We need to be financially stable, so we need to get our high-revenue patients in. And they don't align. And so I think for things to really make a change, we have to really have some regulatory impact on some of the things that drive boarding and some of the acceptability of boarding that exists. And until that happens, we can try little fixes, but those little fixes come with a a relatively high cost. When you talk about smoothing and having everyone function 24-7, that's a lot of extra expense to a health system. We can't keep building hospital beds. It just doesn't work. We may want to help build some specific hospital beds. I would love for us to build more behavioral health hospitals because I think that they are a significant issue and they are actually so vulnerable and are put in the position where they are stuck in a loud, chaotic, completely bright for 24 hours a day environment. And we expect them to function in a manner when they are actually having severe mental illness. And so that is probably the population that I feel for the most. And unfortunately, I think we are going to have to absolutely provide more resources to address up that, that specific population in their boarding. Yeah, I always feel 
really horrible about those patients, as well as some of our elderly patients who are more prone to delirium and, you know, really need those sleep-wake cycles, and you just lose that completely in the ED. And then obviously, Jules, you see it with the little kids all the time. Same thing. They're up at three o'clock in the morning, bright lights, and it's just, it's not a good situation for, for anybody. When you talk about these regulatory changes, are you talking about things that are, for example, holding hospitals to this four-hour boarding limit? Or what kind of regulatory changes do you see? I think you'd have to do that. I think that's one of the things that will make someone, everyone listen. Because right now, it is it is viewed just as our problem. And so until it becomes a health system problem, I'm not sure there's going to be the resources put in place to really address it. Because hospital systems can't make it a priority right now or don't have the resources to make it a priority. What other regulatory um stances would you ask JCO to take? I think it would be helpful for them to put a recommended hospital occupancy rate and when a certain percent is reached that the ED takes priority. From my own, you know, selfish emergency department perspective that my bosses would probably hate. (laughs) What's that ideal occupancy percentage? Yeah, I think at 90% is when we really start getting clogged. And so I think at 90% having a priority change on who gets the, the beds first would make a huge difference. So hospitals have to make some changes. And you mentioned one option earlier, smoothing. Deb, tell us what is smoothing? How does that work? How could that be a solution for a hospital system? Smoothing really is the process of distributing resources across a broad, make the time equally. So when you think about what we do right now, and you think about a primary care physician, they see patients nine to five, Monday through Friday, and are closed on weekends. So they aren't smoothed on what their access is across seven days. And so the concept of smoothing is holding people open, primary care doctors access open longer. So you can provide, you know, not 24-7, but maybe seven days or at least six days a week care. In the hospital itself, though, the true area that people talk about smoothing in is the ORs, right? So do you have your operating rooms open on Saturday? How late are your operating rooms open? If you can add some additional time and smooth the demand on those resources, you may be able to get people in and out faster and move people through their their process and their journey to health a little bit easier. Radiology, and I, I, I hate to be picking on certain specialties, but access to certain radiology studies are not available on weekend. And so, goodness gracious, don't come in on a Friday night if you need something, right, that's done because you may have to stay till Monday. And if those beds are an issue, that doesn't really work. And it just leads to more and more hospital occupancy becomes higher and higher and boarding then increases. Are there other hospital level or hospital wide interventions that you see that could be helpful? I think right now hospitals need to keep their nursing staff and their ancillary staffs full, right? They need to actually be at capacity because what's happening, especially during this Omicron wave, is that we're seeing beds close. Right. I mean, it's a great time to be a nurse, right, because you're in such demand and we're seeing so many people go out and be travelers making tons of money. But I think it's time for the hospitals to figure out how they can show that they value nursing, you know, anyone who participates in that patient journey. What about on the ED level? Um, You know, I mean, I think we can all agree on this recording that this needs to be hospital wide, not just ED, but for other ED and departmental directors and leaders, what are some of the um, solutions that your team is proposing for ED level? 
a lot of times we end up throwing a lot of stuff at the wall and praying something sticks. You know, my favorite saying, (laughs) my approach to things is fail fast, right? If we're going to try something, let's admit that we didn't do what we wanted. Um, I think we honestly have to look at our own throughput and how we address things. When you look at a patient's journey and where they wait, you know, they come in, they see a greeter, and then they could wait, and they may get triaged, and they can wait. They may see a provider in triage, and they wait. Those waits are all opportunities. And so I I really do think we need to rethink how we do things. If we can improve the process for the 50 to 70% or even 80% in some institutions that get discharged, we can at least address the crowding, which is the people waiting to be seen. And I do think that that we have to address our own processes. And whether that means flipping triage to see a physician first and then get the triage and all the 20 questions that have to be asked and all that process that goes through, um, I think we need to look at our turnaround time for radiology, who's reading, when they're reading, um, our lab time. Are we having our nurses do high-value nursing work? Are we having them do things that somebody else can do? And so I think it's time that we actually take a hard look at what we've done. And as much as I hate it, sometimes the old way and the way we've always done it just leads to continued failure and that we're going to have to be really innovative about it as we go forward. What about for individual providers? You know, what do I need to do on my next shift to try to make a difference in this problem? In a couple of hours. (laughs) Right, right. How can I fix this? (laughs) I think the best thing you can do is always consider the look at it from the patient's lens. So when I see a patient and there's that, you know, my choice is to go in the room or, and I have five hallway patients that, of course, we never have at Abram General, but the five hallway patients that exist. And do I do I get them started or what can I do to say, to help expedite their process through? Whether it's, do I see them first or do I move people out of beds um, to see the people in rooms and keep people in rooms that desert, that need them versus they don't. And so I think it's really looking at every patient and what do they need? What can you do to f- help them in an ex- you know a fast manner? I don't think the answer is throwing labs and doing every test on everybody without any history. That just gets people to think we're triage doctors, which we have worked so hard for decades to really um, not be. I think we need to identify ourselves as the experts in on-demand and unscheduled care, however that exists. And so, um, but I do think there are ways that we can rethink on the value of a bed, rethink the need for a private room for a prolonged time, um, and think about different ways that we can use space that allows kind of patients to move through their ED journey and not necessarily be stuck in one spot. During the COVID era, telehealth really took off. And, um, you know, we've seen a lot of ED visits or at least sort of maybe urgent care level visits being taken care of on telehealth. Is this a golden ticket? Is this a solution here to overcrowding? No, unfortunately, (laughs) I don't think it is. I think telehealth is great. It's just like opening an urgent care. It can offset some people, but the Overcrowding is still going to occur. I also believe that there are specific patient populations, often most vulnerable, that don't have the technology needed. And at least where I practice, that is a huge group. And so I think telehealth may be a great way for people with great insurance to continue to get great care. 
but not necessarily the way for all patients who need us to get great care. You mentioned at the beginning that COVID has kind of created a uh, setting where other specialties and hospital systems and the rest of the world is seeing how overcrowding and boarding is impacting our health system. Where do we go from here? How can we ride that wave and help to make this a a systems-wide approach? I mean, I think everybody recognizes the challenges we've had, the internal medicine folks especially, on what happens when the amount that need resources exceed the resources you have. Um, And I think that feeling of fatigue that they've had to experience, unfortunately, and that kind of burden of all those patients that everyone has to experience has opened that discussion and made burnout and made true just cognitive fatigue much more common discussion on floors one through whatever through a hospital and not just in the ED. And I think as a physician practice, that discussing burnout is probably a lot more acceptable now than it was prior to COVID. And I think people recognize what happens when the resources become too scarce. And so I think we can use that discussion as it's a much more, um, it's much more acceptable than it probably was prior to COVID as a reason and kind of bring up instances and into, you know, things we're going through. So Deb, thank you so much. This has really been, you know, unfortunately an enlightening episode, <laughs> um, but it's nothing we like talking about, but it is the reality that we live. So um, I think coming up with some of these solutions and looking forward is so important. Um, anything that we haven't covered that you would like to talk about? I mean, I think that everyone just needs to realize that we do such a great job for our patients and that we are an essential component of them. And and thank you to everyone who's working so hard to address these issues. Thank you for all you're doing for our patients. Um, I don't think we thank ourselves enough and give ourselves enough grace that even in bad situations, we are doing an amazing job taking care of as many patients as we can. And um, if no one tells you thank you today, I'm going to. So thank you for all that you're doing. I love it. Sarah, thank you for what you do. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you, Julia. (laughs) I really appreciate that the authors looked beyond the traditional solutions to ED crowding. Yeah, I've been around long enough to hear the typical solutions, establish an urgent care nearby, triage low acuity patients out, or put a provider in triage, or create a fast track, etc., etc., etc. Basically, all ED-based solutions. Pulse check. Direct from the commentary, here are five essential elements that we all need to take on to address ED crowding. One, ED crowding must be acknowledged as the serious problem to patient safety that it is, and not the inconvenience it is perceived to be. Two, most important, there are no known examples of successful amelioration of ED crowding in any institution without significant visible buy-in and action directed from senior-most institutional leadership. Three, healthcare financing must realign reimbursement from current practices that outright promotes ED boarding. Four, regulators must clearly address the impact of crowding on patient safety, its prevention of violence, and its implications for staff well-being. Likewise, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education should consider the impact of crowding on training and trainee well-being within their credentialing criteria of institutions. Five, 
Crowding is predictive and, accordingly, enforceable preemptive surge plans must be generated and actuated. When crowding does occur, it must be considered in the same light as a disaster with the same deliberate moral response. Okay, that's it. As Dr. Dierk says, thank you for what you do. We recognize ED crowding is hard on your soul and not why you went into medicine to begin with. Thank you for sticking with it and working to find solutions to this pervasive issue. And if you have not heard, we are crafting a podcast series on women in emergency medicine. We're looking for stories that illustrate what it's really like to be a woman in emergency medicine. And we'd be honored if you would call our storyline to record your story. Call 951-251-4804 and leave a message or contact us on social media at Impulse Podcast. Another way to show your support for Impulse Podcast is to like the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. Thank you to our department for working so hard to find solutions. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for smoothing out this podcast. (laughs) See y'all next time. (laughs) 